Welcome to How to Love Forever. In this episode, we expose ourselves. <laughs> By which he means we open up about getting vulnerable. Potato, potato. We define what is vulnerability. We share examples of healthy and unhealthy vulnerability. We break down the benefits of being vulnerable without getting needy or being a doormat or an inscrutable jerk. All coming up right, right now. now. Hi. I'm Marco. And I'm Heather. We invite you on a journey of discovery as we explore techniques, tools, and inspiration to better our love lives and our sex lives. Join us as we travel the world, seeking out the stories that can help improve how we do romance and relationships. Come with us as we discover how, how to, to love, love forever. forever. Hi, love bunnies. Welcome to today's episode of How to Love Forever, the podcast that explores love, relationships, and sexuality. I'm Heather. And I'm Marco. In today's episode, we are discussing vulnerability, why it's crucial for healthy relationships, examples of how to be vulnerable, and what vulnerability is not. You know, it's a really difficult habit to engage, and most of us do everything in our power to avoid it because culturally speaking, we've been told that vulnerability is actually a weakness. But it helps to make us so much stronger and able to enjoy deeper, more meaningful connections. You know, vulnerability can be a real superpower, one might say. <laughs> uh, let's just dive in. Sure, let's dive in. We've got some stuff. Yeah. Let's talk about what vulnerability is. Because most of us have a mistaken definition of vulnerability stemming from things like New Age magazines, motivational posters, you know, things like that. And honestly, one of the ways that we could best define vulnerability is by challenging these cultural assumptions mm -hmm. and seeing what vulnerability isn't. So let's dive into that so we can understand it better. Yeah, let's go. There are three things that vulnerability is definitely not. Like what, Marco? Number one, vulnerability is not weakness. What do you mean it's not weakness? Well, when other people open up to us, for example, we feel good. We feel connected to them. You know, it's nice that they've opened up to us. We feel trusted. Mm, yeah, having trust is beautiful. We feel accepted. Mm -hmm. But when it's our turn, uh, then we end up tensing up. You know, we, we get all stiff about it because we think of vulnerability as some sort of weak point in our armor. Mm. It's a rip in our protective layer, mm -hmm. so to speak. But emotional vulnerability is actually a sign of strength. Because if you pair it with wise decision-making about when to be vulnerable, it can be a tool for strengthening those connections between people. Mm, absolutely. Another thing that vulnerability isn't is a choice. I'm sorry, what? Yeah, that's the way I see it. Vulnerability isn't the choice you make. See, there's this misconception that some people are just inscrutable, invulnerable. They're made of stone, you know, like Terminator types. Or her Superman. Or Superman. Mm -hmm. Unless you're some sort of heavily emotionally damaged person, though, you possess vulnerability. Because life requires it. You need vulnerability in your everyday life. It's a social skill. Life requires vulnerability in varying degrees, but it is required. So all displays of emotion are signs of vulnerability. All sharing of personal information is vulnerability. Even not sharing is a sign of your fear of vulnerability, which is itself a vulnerability. Checkmate. <laughs> That's true. And what's the third one you're going to talk about? I think that vulnerability is not having no secrets. As in, you get to keep some secrets for yourself? You absolutely. don't have to share every little thing? Yeah, absolutely you okay. do. You get to keep things for yourself. There's a mistaken assumption that vulnerability means that you have to wear all of your things, all of your secrets on your sleeve, having no boundaries, exercising universal trust, 
None of that's true. It's bunk. You have to practice common sense and emotional wisdom, and you have to choose when to be vulnerable and with whom and how much every time. Hmm. Yeah, I like that. I think it's really important for us to stay grounded within ourselves. And so if we have our sense of self and a sense of centeredness, mm -hmm. then it's going to be easier for us to feel comfortable trusting people, but not having to be dependent necessarily. Yeah, trusting people without having to be dependent. That's great. While we were researching this episode, we came across a lot of work by Dr. Brene Brown, and I'm sure a lot of you are already familiar with her work. She has written a lot of books. She's a researcher. Uh, she works at the University of Houston. And one of the things that she said in her 2012 book, Daring Greatly, How the Courage to be Vulnerable Transforms the Way We Live, Love, Parent, and Lead, she says vulnerability is the core the heart, the center of meaningful human experiences. Hmm. And she defines vulnerability as the acceptance of uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. Ooh, let's let's break that down real quick. Uh, so Dr. Brené Brown, PhD, she defined vulnerability as the acceptance of uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. Yeah, the acceptance. Yeah. I love that because... It's understanding that vulnerability is unavoidable. And if we do want to have deeper connections, we have to be accepting of the fact that we're going to be uncomfortable, that there's uncertainty. It's we can't deal in absolutes. Hmm. Absolutely can't. Yeah. Well, no, that's just the human condition, isn't it? I right. Mean, everything is a risk. Everything is uncertain. And yeah, the emotional exposure part, well, that's part and parcel of being human in society. You have to open yourself up to other people. Right. We are emotional creatures. We, we base our civilization on cooperation. And so if we cannot create these stronger relationships, we simply don't have civilization. I see that. So that reminds me of this Psychology Today article that I read written by Dr. Joan Rosenberg. She says that two defining moments of emotional strength, one of them is feeling capable that involves dealing with unpleasant feelings, you know, and the second is being resourceful, which involves acknowledging your needs and limitations and asking for help. Mm -hmm. More specifically, feeling capable of dealing with life's challenges comes from knowing that you can effectively experience, move through and express eight unpleasant feelings. <laughs> this is almost like George Carlin's words that you can't say on television, right? The eight unpleasant feelings that she's talking about are sadness, shame, helplessness, anger, embarrassment, disappointment, frustration, and vulnerability. Mm, and there's a partridge in a pear tree. <laughs> <laughs> Does it make you want to curse a lot? Yeah, everything makes me want to curse a lot. <laughs> no, but I'm serious. So being capable of dealing with life's challenges comes from knowing you can effectively experience these things, move through these feelings and express them, you know? Sadness, shame, helplessness, anger, embarrassment, disappointment, frustration, vulnerability. Why these eight feelings? Because they're the ones that suck? Well, they're the ones that happen all the time, right? They're the most common. And they're these spontaneous reactions to not getting what we want or think that we need. Hmm. Oh, I see. The spontaneous reactions. Okay, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. The spontaneous reactions to things not turning out the way we want them to. Right. Obviously, we all have reactions. We all have feelings. But when we aren't able to allow the feelings to process and move on and, and see them in a healthy perspective, well, then it's 
downright immature and we aren't able to have developed and conscientious relationships with anyone, including ourselves. Interesting. Well, Dr. Joan Rosenberg also points out in this article that there are two kinds of vulnerability, non-conscious and conscious vulnerability. Now, there's a big distinction, obviously. Non-conscious is our everyday vulnerability. That's simply due to the fact that we're animated meat sacks with all kinds of emotions. Life presents constant opportunities to be injured in one way or another. I mean, you can take care of yourself all you want, and then you step out your apartment, and one day a comet falls on your head. You have no real control over things like that. Right, and, and we can't avoid being vulnerable. Right. You know, mm. it, you can even not leave your apartment and something terrible happens. Oh, absolutely. It's just part of life. Just the fact that we are biological creatures means that we are vulnerable to disease and decay. So eventually, just I, physics will get us. Well, I just thought of something. Living is doing everything we can to avoid dying. Have you thought of that? No matter what we do, we're doing our best to enjoy our lives, but it's all geared towards avoiding dying. Sure, you tell a squirrel suit jumper that. <laughs> well, some some people skirt a little closer to that fine line. <laughs> more often. <laughs> Those guys are crazy. Bam's crazy. And I totally want to do it. Uh, I love you. And please have a big insurance policy before you do. <laughs> well, so long as you manage it online. Uh, sure. <laughs> so I'll mop my tears with all those $100 bills. That's right. You got to mop your tears with million dollar bills. <laughs> oh, God. Like he's gone. So that's In not... a splatter. <laughs> <laughs> so that's non-conscious vulnerability. <laughs> You know, anything could go wrong at any time. We get that. All of a sudden, yeah. your cells be, may begin to mutate in a cancer kind of way. Or all of a sudden, you may, you know, just like happen to be under the wrong building as it collapses, that kind of thing. So, and the thing too with non-conscious vulnerability, most of the time we aren't really like hyper aware of being vulnerable. Mm -hmm. However, when something traumatic happens, it does heighten our awareness. And so then we start to picture or visualize the varying ways in which we are vulnerable at any given time, uh -huh. right? But our brain is designed to avoid thinking about how vulnerable we are because otherwise it could literally paralyze us into inaction. Yeah, it's true. We are sort of geared to ignore those things. Mm -hmm. Because every time you cross the street, it's a life or death situation. In fact, every time you cross the street or get in a car, you're like a thousand times more likely to die than like when you're in an airplane, which is statistically speaking, one of the safest places to be. Right. And yeah. yet it's that perception in an airplane of your vulnerability because you're in a tin can flying at 800 miles an hour with like 200 other people that makes you feel extra conscious of that one. Well, and it's also we have been crossing the road for thousands of years, yet we've only been in a tin can shooting through the sky a little over 100. So evolutionarily speaking. But the thing is, when we understand that vulnerability is something we can't avoid, and then we can take the steps to embrace vulnerability in a stronger and more conscious way, how does that affect us? I presume pretty greatly. But, you know, that leads in to this idea that there's this other side that is conscious vulnerability. Mm -hmm. So conscious vulnerability is different than unconscious vulnerability. It's where we get to choose how and when to be vulnerable. These are things that we have agency over. So, you know, getting to choose, it gives us the power. And ironically, maybe it makes us less likely to experience harm from it. Maybe. One of the things I really love about conscious vulnerability is, is recognizing our everyday non-conscious vulnerability and embracing it. Hmm. 
like knowing that any given moment you could cross the street and die. You take your precautions and then you continue living your life, right? Mm -hmm. So to me, that's really akin to the sportsman's consciousness of um, getting all all of those what ifs out of your mind. So, mm -hmm. so in psychology, there's this concept called catastrophizing. And it's this internal dialogue that most people have about what could be going wrong at any given minute. Like say, for example, you're in a car and you're waiting at a red light. And there's traffic going across. There's somewhere in the back of your head, some little scripted voice going, oh, that red truck. What if all of a sudden the tire blows out and it comes careening toward me? What will I do then? <laughs> That's a, actually a, a, a perfectly natural process in your head. And everybody goes through it. And oh, it's, yeah. It's called catastrophizing. I do Any it all the time. Any single moment. Mm -hmm. Like you're standing in line at a bank and you're like, oh, what would happen if all of a sudden Alan Rickman and a bunch of goons comes in and takes over the place with bombs, you know? <laughs> <laughs> how would I react? How would I keep myself safe? How terrible would it be? How could I get Alan Rickman's autograph because he's dead? I mean, do you know how much money that would be worth? Oh, I didn't realize that was an actual person. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> it was oh, Alan Rickman. <laughs> he, was, uh, he was Voldemort. He was the bad guy in the uh, Die Hard movies. That's not his name. Alan Rickman. Oh, crap. Look at the f*** up, lady. I know who Alan Rickman is. <laughs> Shut your face. Are you sure it's not Rickman Allen? <laughs> sure, we'll go with Rickman Allen. So... <laughs> no, you're right. <laughs> okay. So anyway, dead Hollywood stars aside. So the catastrophizing aspect is a unconscious preparatory sort of mentality, right? It's almost like your brain figuring out what's the worst thing that could happen at any given moment so that you can be prepared for it. Mm -hmm. If Alan Rickman comes in with machine guns and bombs and goons, are you like hiding behind the teller window? Are you going to run out the, the door? Are you going to like go hide in the air ducts? You know, that kind of thing. Going to make sure you have a Sharpie so he can give you that autograph. Exactly. If Before that, you die. <laughs> if that red pickup truck comes swinging through the red light and all of a sudden careens toward you, what you going to do? Are you going to duck? Are you going to gun the gas pedal so that you can get out of the way? You know, in other words, if you can imagine it, you can prepare for it, right? Mm -hmm. So conscious vulnerability is a bit of that. It's recognizing your unconscious vulnerability, things that you have no control over and embracing them as possibilities and making sure that you are prepared if they do happen. And so like sports people, like when somebody is preparing for like a karate championship and they're doing their katas and then they sit and they do, they totally do. This is not just out of the movies with Dr. Mr. Miyagi. The, they sit and they visualize every single kind of strike that the opponent could bring on. And in hmm. their brains, they're playing out every single defense, every parry, and every counter-strike, mm -hmm. almost like programming their unconscious mm -hmm. in order to get it into their body memory mm -hmm. through visualization. So it's a way that your conscious vulnerability affects your unconscious vulnerability. It's like a way to prepare for it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I know that when we're performing, if there are times where, say we're up on stilts and I see something potentially dangerous, some gravel, you know, in a, in a weird spot, or even the wind just coming up and, and potentially pushing us around on our stilts. Right. Instead of focusing on all the awful things that could happen, I visualize being secure and and agile enough to be able to respond and stay on my stilts and not yeah. have terrible shit happen. 
Absolutely. And that is exactly what I'm talking about. That's the preparatory aspect of your conscious vulnerability interacting with your unconscious vulnerability and taking things out of the realm of scary, scary, I'm not going to think about it. But instead, mm -hmm. you know, your brain says, well, if this could happen, I'm prepared. Yeah. And so it's an empowerment situation. No, and yeah. it's much better to be prepared instead of just living in avoidance. Right. I like that a lot. So out of the world of crazy car accidents and comets hitting you in the head and Alan Rickman taking over the bank and, and having to have Bruce Willis come and save you, uh, let's get back to relationships, shall we? <laughs> oh, is that why we're here? I don't know anymore. <laughs> um, there are ways in which being vulnerable can help us in our relationships, right? The ways in which being vulnerable helps us in our relationships are multifold, but you have to know what vulnerability actually is. So earlier in the episode, we've already talked about what it isn't. Let's go ahead and define it. One of the things that I feel vulnerability is, is that it is the courage to open yourself up to potential rejection. Mm. So courage, the Latin root word is heart, right? Ooh, like cour. Courage. Courage. It's being hearty. <laughs> <laughs> like a good stew. Oh, yes. There's this turkey meat stew has lots of courage. <laughs> or is that cumin? Or porridge. Maybe it's porridge made of cumin. Ew. Ew. Mm. I'm going to go with no. I'm sure somewhere in the world there's a really fancy restaurant serving that crap. Anyway, so <laughs> courage is the Latin root word is heart. That's mm -hmm. cool. That's yeah. cool. I hadn't thought about that before. Right. Isn't it beautiful? So it literally means or it originally meant being wholehearted or having the strength to open your whole self up for others. Oh, wow. Right? So taking your heart and, and literally like spreading it open, literally, not literally, you know, emotionally speaking, and bearing yourself to be able to make connections. So courage in its original Latin root word means the wholehearted approach to relations, mm -hmm. whether it's, you know, your family, your friends, or your lover. It's, it's, it's having the strength of mind. To open yourself up to others completely. Mm -hmm. It's having the strength to be vulnerable. Wow. That's courage. So courage. So courage is the strength of vulnerability. Isn't mm -hmm. that cool? Isn't that beautiful? I love that. That's great. Yeah, because, you know, in order for true connection to happen, we do have to allow ourselves to be seen. Like truly, really seen, a hundred percent. You know, that's what those connections are predicated on. Otherwise, they are built on sort of, you know, on truths, right? On truths and a foundation of mutual trust that builds up over time. Right. And that mm -hmm. trust comes, I guess, from others by the willingness to allow yourself to be known as imperfect, mm -hmm. because that's actually a way that people connect with you. If you're if you're perfect, they've got no frame of reference to connect with you on because nobody's perfect. Yeah. So when you do have the strength of character to bear your heart out and be like, I fart all night or, you know, like some other form of personal vulnerability, some some declaration. Of, of who I you are. I have insecurities about this body part of mine, or I have a fear of being rejected. I was abandoned by my parents and raised by wild chickens. Right. You know, things like that. Hey, these things happen. And so, yeah, people can relate to that. They'll be like, oh, wow, I was raised by wild turkeys. I was mm -hmm. raised by wild pigeons. Mm -hmm. Wild pigeons. <laughs> <laughs> Wild pigeons, I think you move me. So, so yeah. So the willingness to be known as imperfect 
is a sign of courage. Mm -hmm. It is courage mm -hmm. by its original root word definition. And I think that is lovely. And even though there are plenty of examples in pop media and history and everything of like these Terminator types that are supposed to be like completely made of stone. And, you know, to me, they're just sociopaths. Or like the original James Bond kind of stereotype. Yeah. Broken people trying to be perfect, mm -hmm. which is what media used to glamorize. Mm -hmm. But nowadays we have a different kind of mentality about those kind of things. It mm -hmm. has evolved, you know, yeah. even in the news and stuff like that. I mean, there's plenty of examples of courageous conscious vulnerability mm -hmm. in the news. Mm -hmm. uh, the one that comes to mind for me is, say, for example, Simone Biles just last uh. year in the Summer Olympics in Japan. Mm -hmm. You know, she even got shamed by Americans, you know, for like letting down her team and everything. Mm -hmm. But she was amazingly courageous. I mean, right at the point when the world needed her and all of that stuff, you know, quote unquote, quote needed unquote, her. because it's yeah. just a fucking metal, guys. OK, <laughs> like, honestly, just in the just at the moment when she was like being the most counted on, she stands up and says, you know what? I'm going to go crazy if I do this. So let me step off. But I am likely to injure myself in one way or another. I need to care for myself. I need to care for myself. And that was, to me, a very courageous stance, you know, rather than like getting used as, you know, a media meat puppet and all of that stuff. She's like, no, I'm a human. I have needs. I need this. Mm -hmm. I from the moment I heard about her needing to step back and, and taking some time off because of her mental health and she was getting the twisties. I mean, obviously, I can't understand because I'm not Simone Biles, but it immediately made sense to me. Of course, yeah. she's under crazy amounts of pressure. She's been doing this her entire life. She's like 24 and being declared the greatest of all time. Shit is eventually going to take its fucking toll. Mm -hmm. And if we want to continue to live our lives with authenticity and with wholeheartedness, being able to recognize that we are about to break is crucial. It is. It really is. And during the course of my career as an entertainer, I have worked with a lot of Olympic artists, mm -hmm. particularly in uh, a little French Canadian circus that some people might have heard of. But there were so many Olympians in it, and mm -hmm. you know, Olympians are by nature hyper achievers. Oh, yeah. Okay, one of my friends in that company was a girl who was like 21, and she had already won a gold medal, I think it was, and then like a silver medal, and you know, she was already working in the company that I thought was like the culmination of my life's work, mm -hmm. and and she had you know houses that she had. Bought and all of this stuff. And, and you just don't know how much of a personal strain that can be on someone. Mm -hmm. And the push to continue down that path as far as it will go, because you have to be the absolute best and all of this. And it comes from this social assumption that just because you're a badass, mm -hmm. you're invulnerable. <laughs> And so people keep piling things up on you. The pop music world is filled with that as well. Just mm -hmm. because you can sing and you look good in a bikini doesn't mean that you can take all of the stress that a multi-billion dollar industry has to heap upon you for its own enrichment. That actually makes me think of Estero. Do you know, you know, the, the songstress Estero? I love Estero. She's amazing. Well, you turned me on to her. A song in her of hers in particular that I really loved. Um, I know you're counting on me to feed all of our families. But I just have to be on my own for a little while. And that entire song is like, it's a beautiful song. It's super like dancey and, and lilty. But it's, I need a fucking break. All right. I know that you guys are counting on me and we're doing this together. But 
I need time for my mental health. We love you, Estero. Please don't sue us for singing your song on our podcast show. It was like two bars, man. Two bars, dude. <laughs> but yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> no, we do love you, Estero. And, and that's one of the things I'm a, I loved most about her as an artist was her open vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Because there were plenty of things that she was saying that were driving her crazy. And usually about the industry. And I get the that. The industry is a meat grinder. Yes, it absolutely. Just chews you up, man. And just like the music industry and just like Hollywood industry, also the Olympic industry is a meat grinder. Mm-hmm. And just because you show better than average ability, they grab you and they find your breaking point. Push and you, push you, push, push you. push you past your breaking point. Mm-hmm. And honestly, most of the time, it's just for them to make more money off you. Well, and also when people break, it creates drama, which brings more publicity. Money off you. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of drama and publicity in pop culture, I, I did appreciate how Prince Harry of England and his wife Meghan Markle have opened up. You know, they've done these interviews with Oprah over the last little while. And something that he said, as a royal, they're part of a firm, right? It's part of a whole large company of publicity. And you can only say or do so many things. And so he hasn't been able to be vulnerable up until this point. And being in a relationship with Meghan Markle has allowed him to see that he was trapped and has found a way to free himself from that confinement. And he's opened up how he's had, obviously, trauma from losing his mother all those years ago and anxiety and panic attacks. Yeah. Historically speaking, royals have never been able to admit that they have emotional distress. They've never been able to admit that they're anything less than perfect. Well, their job is to be perfect. They're like, ooh, supposed to be the children of God and all that shit. Ordained by God. Uh, so well, their entire rulership is predicated on the notion that they are better than others. Right. So, right. yeah, to show any kind right. of imperfection Which is, is bad marketing on their part. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, think what you will of... Of all of it, but I do really appreciate the courage that is taking them to break free and be vulnerable in mainstream media. And it was interesting the way it went down. So and and then also the Me Too movement, you know, not everybody is aware that it was uh, started by Tarana Burke in 2006. Uh, She's been an activist and an advocate. And she came up with the Me Too concept after speaking with a young girl who had admitted to being sexually molested. And she didn't say Tarana didn't say anything to her, I guess, at that moment. Mm. But when this little girl or, you know, young teen was sharing with her this horrific experience, all Tarana was thinking apparently was me too me too me too ouch and and then when Alyssa milano came out in 2017 and she and that was the beginning of like the cultural popular that was the wildfire right Right. she borrowed that phrase Alyssa milano i mean and she shared the tweet and i think it was she i think she might have tagged toronto burke in it but um anyone who has been sexually accosted or harassed or assaulted uses hashtag me too and of course the large majority of women worldwide i mean i I think they they estimate like a third of women have been sexually molested in one way or another that is a disgusting statistic i kind of think it might be higher from personal experience and speaking with all of my girlfriends yeah i i don't know if i know anyone who hasn't i mean maybe i do but it just seems to be so prevalent but it is a great example of vulnerability 
vulnerability turned into a virtue, mm -hmm. you know, because this movement wouldn't be a liberational moment the way it is right now without her standing up, Alyssa Milano in, in this particular case, mm -hmm. without her standing up and, and giving voice to something that such a vast number of people share mm -hmm. with her. And again, that's the thing about that vulnerability is that nobody's perfect. And in this case, she had such a group of solidarity with like such a giant number of women in the world, which is tragic in and of itself. But it is the element that turned this, you know, it's like weaponized vulnerability where all of a sudden that solidarity that she has with like a third of the women in the world mm -hmm. became a nuclear strength. Mm -hmm. All of them together are changing the world for the better. Mm -hmm. But she did it not knowing what the response would be. No, she stepped into the unknown. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, from that core definition of what vulnerability is, mm -hmm. is the acceptance of risk. Yeah, she opened herself up wholeheartedly and was willing to be vulnerable and take that risk. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. It is amazing. It's really moved me personally. I can imagine. Woo! Okay, so that's heavy stuff. Um <laughs> I want to go back to a couple of other things that vulnerability isn't, though. I mean, we keep going back and forth because we're like tearing down myths mm -hmm. and then we're defining vulnerability in their place. So let's talk about these misconceptions of vulnerability and redefine them for people because the people need it. Um, real vulnerability is earned. Mm. You don't just give away your keys to anybody. You must find a good reason to exercise sufficient trust to accept that uncertainty, risk, and exposure. You're not going to just trust anyone. People have to prove that they're trustworthy with your openness, with your vulnerability. It's a gift that you give. It's an award that you give. And I do kind of push back against the, you know, don't give your keys to anyone because, for example, these people in mainstream media like Prince Harry, Meghan Markle, Simone Biles, Alyssa Milano, they open themselves up to the world at large. However, just understanding it in my own head, would you say that because they have the reputations and the, that they've built and, and the platform of general public appreciation that they felt comfortable and confident enough opening themselves up? Well, that's the difference between a public figure and a private individual like you and me. Mm. They have a followership. They have an army of people that love them and an army of people that maybe don't love them. So they're at a different dynamic. Uh, obviously, we spoke about them as social figures because they were great examples of being universally vulnerable. It, but these things, they were also done at a moment when they generated the most amount of like sympathy and compassion for these folks. You know, Meghan Markle, Simone Biles, the Me Too movement. It was a choice that they made that was a gamble, but it paid off. So there's a difference between a celebrity telling the world their vulnerability and Jane Doe down the street telling any rando her vulnerability. It's because they already have reputation and, and like you said, a whole you know, team of people who love and admire them. Yeah, their social capital is strong. Right. Whereas if a single private individual just bears it all out to a single other private individual, that can be an opportunity for somebody that has lesser ethics mm -hmm. to take advantage to take advantage of that person. And that's the part that I'm talking about when I say real vulnerability is earned. It's that a particular individual has got to prove themselves worthy of your vulnerability, worthy of your openness. Yeah, okay. That doesn't mean be guarded like stone all the time, but it means, you know, no. It means have the emotional wisdom to know how much to dispense at any given time. Right. And so you got to 
test it out. And obviously you're going to make mistakes here and there, but hopefully you'll learn from them and have a better barometer of who to trust and when. Right, right. Which mm-hmm. brings me to point number two, that being someone's partner isn't automatic access to all their life secrets. <laughs> what? That's right. Come just on, because, Marco. No, just because you're somebody's partner doesn't mean that you get all the keys to that person's kingdom. Sorry. There will always be personal experiences that are best kept to oneself. And that can be whatever it is that you wish to keep secret about yourself. Mm-hmm. People have secrets. End of story. Just because you're somebody's boyfriend or girlfriend or even wife or husband for like 60 years doesn't mean that you have a right to something that that other individual wishes to keep to themselves. No, I fully agree with that. Yeah. There are definitely things that I know won't impact or affect our relationship that you don't need to know about me. It's something that I might still feel kind of ashamed about or I learned my lesson from. This is not a lack of respect for one's partner. It's a presence of respect for oneself, right? So if you wish to keep a personal detail personal, and it's a detail that has no influence on your relationship, then you have every right to keep it inside if you prefer. If it's something from your past, or if it's something that doesn't affect the people today in any Mm -hmm. way, that's your life, and you have your right to keep it to yourself, right? Right. Yeah, you need to have autonomy while also respecting the relationship that you've built with your partner, and Mm -hmm. being vulnerable in the ways that are necessary and good and healthy, but also not opening every single door. Yeah. One thing is, you know, being vulnerable and another thing is emotional dumping. Uh, mm. However, if these details from your past or this detail of what happens in your life, etc., or whatever, it, if it does affect your relationship in real not imagined ways, then it's in keeping with your personal integrity that you share that with your partner. Another thing about vulnerability is that it doesn't necessarily feel good. <laughs> Vulnerability is not comfy. Nope. You know, you're opening yourself up to risk, as has been defined, uh, and that can be anxiety-inducing. You know, the part that feels good is the potential reward that comes from exercising that risk. So being vulnerable isn't the thing that's comfy and, and, and joyful. It's the reward you get for having become vulnerable to the right person at the right time. That's what you actually, that's the prize. But yeah, vulnerability itself is kind of inherent discomfort. Well, and isn't that what that psychologist Joan Rosenberg was saying? It's acceptance of all these uncomfortable feelings. Yeah, totally. And vulnerability is definitely not comfortable. Absolutely. Those those eight feelings that were like absolute uh, feelings. Yeah, Mm -hmm. totally. That's that's what that is. Mm. And also, I just want to point out there is no such thing as invulnerability. I mean, the word exists. But then again, so does phlogiston, you know? So the opposite of vulnerability is not invulnerability. Check this out. The opposite of vulnerability is shame. Mm-hmm. Let's break that down because Dr. Brene Brown defines shame as the fear of disconnection. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really profound. It's the notion that there's this something about you that if others were to find out about, you would no longer be worthy of being connected with them. Right. You would be ousted from the village for whatever reason. It's that anxiety of ostracism. Mm -hmm. So that's what shame is. It's a cultural response that fear of no longer being worthy of being connected to others. You know, nobody wants to talk about it. And the less you talk about it, probably the more you have it. Mm -hmm. The more shame you carry. You mean you like you're more afraid of the rejection because it's like you have more things that you're trying to hide. (laughs) Yeah. And the shame itself can be a recursive force because like your feeling of shame can be a source of shame, which is a stupid downward spiral to get into because we all have shame. 
Shame is that nagging impulse in the back of everyone's brain. It's a form of catastrophizing. Oh, yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. Just like when you thought that Alan Rickman was coming with bombs and machine guns, right? It's the same thing. It's your brain giving you anxiety-inducing scenarios. Mm Mm-hmm. Of you doing stuff that would ostracize you from the group, which, of course, from an evolutionary standpoint, is like a death sentence, right? Right. So it's a survival instinct. And honestly, the only people who don't exhibit shame are kind of the same people that don't exhibit vulnerability. They are neurologically incapable of human connection or emotion. Mm. Really, really broken people have either no shame or no vulnerability. And that's like the only people that do. So it's actually a survival instinct then to be able to have shame, right? And it's like a training because if we have shame, then it trains us how to be better participants in our society and better partners, et cetera. Totally. And when we have shame, it's almost like cooking. Shame is like cooking? (laughs) How is shame like cooking? (laughs) When we when we What if you order out instead? (laughs) Is there no shame in ordering out? Different kind. Different kind. It's pizza night is I need you to focus, Marco. Focus. 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 Why does it always go to food here? I don't know. I'm hungry. Stop it. I just fed you. (laughs) No, no, no. So when we learn how to cook, uh, we might be a little clumsy with the stove and And we can burn ourselves, right? Burn our hands. Mm. And it's the same thing when we are learning how to be good social creatures. Shame is like when we burn ourselves on the stove. So shame is burning your social connections? Yeah, exactly. It's burning your social connections. I Mm. can – so many stupid things I did when I was younger – I'm sure there are plenty that I still do now, but – I'm not going to say anything. (laughs) That's probably for the best. But it actually, so I don't know how many of you watch the Netflix show Big Mouth. I'm. <laughs> uh, okay, Love Bunnies, show of hands. How many of you watch Big Mouth? <laughs> I'm counting. One, two, three, <laughs> um, million, million one. Yeah, it's like all two. of you. It's amazing. All of you. Yeah, yeah, no, fantastic. <laughs> okay, so then all of you know about the Netflix show Big Mouth. Go on, Heather. Okay, so the shame wizard, right? Shame oh, wizard. The shame wizard. The I totally shame forgot about that wizard. guy. The shame wizard. So in season five, Jesse was being a jerk to the character Missy, and Jesse needed to recognize how she made Missy feel. So the shame was important training, Ooh. right? It's like you burn your hand on the stove. You need to learn how not to be stupid. Mm. And I love this. So there's this uh, this quote from the shame wizard that I had to pull up. Whether they know it or not, people need shame. It protects them from the sickening filth that festers within. (laughs) Their humiliating inadequacies, self-destructive proclivities, stupid magic tricks, their fundamental otherness, and of course the uncontrollable urge to squirm on a glowed worm. For you see, shame is the cone you place around the head of your dim-witted dog to prevent him from gnawing at his own genitals because they will become infected. So it's really gross. And obviously the shame is more intense than it needs to be. Well, yeah, that was the whole point is that this shame had run out of control. Yeah. I mean, it's kids like, yeah, our emotions are just rampant when we're at that age. But having shame can be a really helpful way for us to realize when we are being 
terrible people. When you're burning your social connections. Burning your social connections. And so if we recognize that we're feeling shame, we understand where it's coming from, and then we make it a point to talk about whatever our fears are or whatever our inadequacies are, and we approach our vulnerability consciously, the shame is then decreased. We don't have to worry about ostracization. Instead, we're able to create deeper, more meaningful connections. Wow, I see that. It strikes me that this shame and this anxiety over over social ostracism is really one of the main reasons that we're like one of the most numbed out cultures in history. Mm-hmm. Dr. Brene Brain, what? Dr. Brainy Brown, Dr. Dr. <laughs> she Brene, is brainy, Brene isn't Brains, she? <laughs> Dr. Brene Brown was t- Dr. Brene Brown was talking about how. Our society, our modern Western society is like the most indebted, the most obese, the most overmedicated, the most addicted, you know, like all of these things are used to numb out our feeling of social shame. Mm. It's also one of the most superficialized, like, you know, like in Instagram, for example, you know, everyone's living this cardboard cutout of your best life ever trademark, you know, without having to like really own up to the things that make them imperfect. Everyone's just like, oh, they got the perfect hat and it's the perfect sunset, you know? And <laughs> and it's also the most polarized. I mean, these social divisions over opinions posing as certainties, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Like, like she says, we make everything uncertain certain now, whether it's it's politics or religion. You know, it's my opinion. Therefore, it's the truth. Everyone's doubling down on things that mm-hmm. they actually know jack shit about, mm-hmm. including me sometimes. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. you know, a dysfunctional way that people deal with shame is blame. And, you know, it can be described as a way to discharge pain and discomfort. Blaming. I, is that like deflecting? Yeah, it's totally. Blaming others is a deflection because everyone's afraid of the social ostracism, of the shame, etc. It's you not know. me. It's him. Exactly. They're the crazy ones. Yeah. Or for whatever it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And like Dr. Brown says, it turns out you can't selectively numb your emotions. <laughs> Mm-hmm. All of this stuff that we're doing in this like anxiety driven race to numb out all of our negative emotions is actually having a negative effect also on our positive emotions because you can't just turn off your anger and shame or fear right. without affecting your positive emotions too. You also end up turning off your positive emotions like love, like well-being, like belonging. Mm. And so this numbing that happens then moves us closer to this like social precipice where nobody's connecting anymore, which is exactly the thing we need. Right. I mean, we need connection. Connection is where we find our fulfillment, our joy, our health, our happiness. So it's a dangerous downward cycle, you yeah. know, and it can happen on a personal level or it can happen on a societal level. And I personally feel that it's happening, that you can see it happening on a on a societal level pretty strongly. Mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, isn't that one of the reasons we're doing this podcast? I know it is for me. Yeah. You know, it's connection. And I feel that our modern world has more ways to connect, but our connections ha- are just so tenuous. Yeah. So that's why we're here, love bunnies. We're here to heal the world through our blabbing. <laughs> No, really, though, because that shame is that fear of burning your social connections, right? That's that that fear of ostracism and things. And what you lose when you're ostracized is that sense of love and belonging, Mm -hmm. that family feeling. Yeah. When nobody is connecting anymore, everybody gets to feel that isolation, which is actually a social brokenness. And that's not cool because Mm -hmm. what we need as fundamental forces in our lives to be good people is to have a sense of love and a sense of belonging. Mm Mm-hmm. 
So in this other study that Dr. Brene Brown did regarding shame and everything, she talked about like this need to have a strong sense of love and belonging, which is, again, it's the opposite of being ostracized, right? right? And she surveyed a ton of people and she discovered that there's this common theme for people who have a strong sense of love and belonging. There's all these variables that she was checking for, but you know the one thing that they all had in common with, apart from everything else? Mm -hmm. They believed they were worthy of love and belonging. If you believe it, you will be loved. Don't give me bumper stickers. But yeah, it's it's really, <laughs> no, right. it, it really is true that the one defining characteristic of everyone that had a strong sense of love and belonging was that they believed they were worthy of it. Mm -hmm. Therefore, they had no shame for accepting it. So yeah, no, I love that. And feeling worthy is the key point to knowing that we are worthy of being accepted and loved and welcomed. And it's okay to be vulnerable because we are worthy of love. Mm. So being worthy is courage. It's courage. It's wholeheartedness, right? It's compassion. You need to be compassionate with yourself. And then you also need to be compassionate with others. If you can accept yourself, then you can accept others. And guess what? They're going to accept you in return. And we're all like kumbayaing together. Uh, it's also authenticity. You have to be real with who you are. You got to be real with the people you love and you need to support them and their own authenticity. Mm -hmm. And with all that vulnerability. So your sense of social worthiness is a combination of these things is what you're saying. Yeah. It's courage, which we've already defined as being wholehearted. It's compassion, being able to accept your own imperfections and therefore, by extension, accept other people's imperfections. Mm -hmm. I love that. And authenticity, mm -hmm. you know, the, the willingness to, oh, I love this one because this one's one that I struggled with for for so fucking long. Authenticity, the willingness to disavow notions of who you're supposed to be or should be mm -hmm. in favor of your true self. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, man. it's so hard. And that's honestly a prerequisite for real connection, because mm -hmm. if you're pretending to be somebody that people expect you to be, again, Simone Biles, for example, right. you know, you will never be yourself. And that is gross. And vulnerability. So with authenticity, here's a, a little example of when I was, I don't know, 19 or 20, there was this guy I started dating and he was so cool and he was into things like jazz and Miles Davis and... Sounds like a jerk. <laughs> He was an interesting person, but I wanted to be accepted by him. I wanted to be thought I was just as cool. So I completely lied and said that I was into Miles Davis and Ella Fitzgerald without really knowing. I'm like, and I, you're like furiously Wikipediaing who they are. Oh, you think Wikipedia <laughs> existed when I was 19? Bless your heart. <laughs> I moisturize. And it wasn't until like after I broke up with him that I'm like, you know what? Maybe, maybe I should look into this whole jazz thing and see if I actually like it. Uh, I can just imagine if you like, I like Miles Davis, but I, I like Kilometers Davis better. He's more European. Well, you know, Billy Holiday. Yeah, he's a really good artist. Yeah, he is. I love his piano work, especially his Christmas album. But I felt like such a fraud. And I was. And it wasn't until I was able to you know, start accepting who I am on a more authentic level and being confident. Therefore, I started actually having real connections and real relationships. Mm. 
Well, there it is. It's that authenticity again. You know, mm -hmm. if you're not being authentic, it's definitely getting in the way of being real in a relationship, which is the only way a healthy relationship can happen. Mm -hmm. And all of that really does tie into vulnerability because that's part of you being authentic with yourself and you being compassionate with yourself and you having the courage to be yourself. Mm -hmm. And that is so important in a relationship. Yeah. Again, with a caveat that you shouldn't do it stupidly because there's a lot of times people really do just give away the farm at the very beginning mm -hmm. and they get themselves into emotional relationship trouble mm -hmm. by having, not because they were vulnerable or not because they had the the courage to be vulnerable, but because they didn't have the emotional wisdom to know when to be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you don't just give your bank account routing number to the first Nigerian prince who emails you. Yeah, you got to waste at least until you have a couple of emails. You know? Exactly. You just wait until he <laughs> buys you dinner first, at least. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Let's talk about that. When and how to do vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And like you've been saying, you can't go 100% open book, you know, and like your first date or whatever. Mm -hmm. You need to, in my opinion, it's important to kind of share it out in a reciprocal manner. Yeah, it strikes me that there's like a timing and pacing for the process to properly unfold. Yeah, and you got to you gotta feel it. You got to respond to the other person's cues. Uh, you need to share something that maybe isn't too crucial to your like personal vulnerability mm. and personal sense of well-being but gives them a little bit of a deeper peek into so it's who you gradual are. it's gradual yeah. it, it relies on like this continuing evaluation of you and your partner's mutual willingness to like up the level right of your mm -hmm. personal openness yeah 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 so you can like at the beginning of a relationship you can assess the relationship and decide what you can volunteer as a point of vulnerability you mm -hmm. know like oh cheese makes me fart all night you know and, and a little one like that you know just something that that is almost like testing the water it's putting your toe in the vulnerability water yeah and making sure that there's water in the pool yeah there's this analogy that I really like to use about like yeah you're not if you're in a gym and you go to the pool, you're not going to just go up to the high board with the lights turned off and dive into the water without some reassurance that there's actually water in the pool. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it becomes a really messy dive. I mean, again, it's one of those squirrel jumper suit guys kind of things to do, I suppose. But even they have all kinds of precautions and safety and training and mm -hmm. everything, you know? So it's not even the real analogy because those guys really do take all the precautions they need in order to put themselves so vulnerable that they They've can smack into the side of a mountain at 190 miles an hour. Oh, They've trained crazy. themselves. Yeah. Trained themselves completely. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, you don't just walk into a dark room and jump in the swimming pool without an assurance that there's water in there. Yeah. And that's exactly it, you know. And and so you put your toe in. You've decided uh, that that it's safe to share that percentage of vulnerability with that person because maybe they reciprocated. You're, you're like, oh, cheese makes me fart all night. And he's like, oh, I'm afraid of my mom, you know. And um, – <laughs> And so, yeah, you totally know, totally balanced. Yeah, totally balanced. And you've established like this sort of mutual regard for each other's secrets, let's say. Yeah. You know, and at that point, at a later time or maybe later on in the same date or whatever, you, mm -hmm. you can be a little more open with them. Yeah, you know? parcel out another little thing. It's like, oh, yeah, I used to be a mass murderer, but I'm okay now, you know? Um, <laughs> and then, you know, they say like, oh, I'm an alien from another planet. And then at that point, you know, it's becoming more and more gradual. And you are more and more vulnerable with each other because you're learning to share 
your perceived imperfections. Perceived imperfections and inner truths. But you're doing it in a safe way because you're parsing it out. Yeah. You know, it's almost like training, mm -hmm. you know? At that first absolutely you, yeah, at first like you do 10 jumping jacks, then afterwards you do 40 jumping jacks, and then afterwards you do 200, you know? Mm -hmm. That kind of thing. Yeah, it's the same thing with all of our emotional training. You need to learn it with your partner or partners. You need to learn it with your friends. You need to learn it with all of the different relationship dynamics you get to experience throughout your life. And, and hopefully you'll get better and better at it. Yeah. And eventually you do build a really strong foundation of deep sharing and profound mutual understanding and acceptance with your partner. But you do it on a foundation of intelligence and, you know, emotional wisdom and 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 reality, authenticity with each other. And I think this... it's a real common sense approach, you know? Yeah. And with this common sense approach, you do. Your vulnerability can be an asset and not a liability. Mm -hmm. No Nigerian prince. Instead, you really are sharing with somebody who treasures your secrets as much as you treasure them yourself. Yeah, they value you. Oh, you know, there's um, years ago, I, I learned something from a person. <laughs> Sorry, that was vague. Years ago, I Me heard too. something. <laughs> wow, we've got so much in common. <laughs> Sorry. I learned something. <laughs> and it was when I was getting out of like my unhealthy relationship. And I heard or I learned that a person will only value you as much as you value yourself. As far as bumper sticker wisdom goes, that is a good one. But also only as little as you allow them to value you. Ooh, Wow. Yeah. See, it gets deeper. It's like they're trying to get a bargain out of you. <laughs> yeah. That brings it a, a whole new dimension to it mm -hmm. when you say it with that second half. Mm -hmm. And that's the secret of proper vulnerability right there. You know, you, you've got to walk that balance between, you know, how much you value yourself and how little other people are willing to value you. Mm -hmm. Isn't that funny? <laughs> and again, it's all about that training. It's about having the emotional wisdom to do it right, uh, mm -hmm. to do it gradually. You'd build a, you build that foundation of trust and vulnerability brick by brick in a relationship. Mm -hmm. um, I like to say mitigate the dangers to maximize the wonders, you mm, know? And yes. the squirrel suit jumper guys, they mitigate those dangers. And boy, do they have some wonders. They've got some wonders. Mm -hmm. And again, sometimes they are also a splat on the side of the mountain, but oh my gosh, have they lived. Yeah, the experiences they've had up until that point. <laughs> Okay, that's getting pretty dark. <laughs> <laughs> no, I say it with all sorts of joy and, and appreciation. It's not something that I would do, but there are all kinds of risks that I am willing to take because I want to have the most joyous and, and most alive experiences I can while yeah. mitigating the risks. Right. And the intelligent way to go about them, yes, is by mitigating the risk, is by doing all the preparation and all the training necessary. And it's the same in your emotional life with your vulnerability with your partners. I love it. I think that's great. Well, that was a ton of fun. I feel really open. <laughs> I mean, it was a little scary, right? A little vulnerable, a little, mm -hmm. little frightening, but I think it's great. I love being vulnerable in, you know, healthy, smart ways. How about you? Oh, I just tell the entire world, like, how I lost my virginity and all kinds of stuff on this podcast. <laughs> For me, I've always been a very private person on the emotional side. And to tell you the truth, this particular podcast series is making me sort of confront a certain sense of vulnerability that I have not experienced, at least in this public a way, literally ever. So yeah, it's been fun like this. And of course, I love the vulnerability and openness that you and I have in our relationship. I feel so very safe with you. And you mm. know, all my 
ugly dark secrets. You know where all the bodies are buried. <laughs> you know all of my secret identities. <laughs> you know where my hundreds of millions of dollars in cash bills are stashed. <laughs> oh, so many, so many secrets, Marco. <laughs> no, and I, I love having the safety of our relationship and the respect that we have for each other. It fills me with confidence and joy. And I know that I'm safe being vulnerable with you. Mm. Always. It's, it's a gift. Always. What about you, dear listeners, our dear squirrel monkeys? Wait a second. What What about... <laughs> I like squirrel monkeys. <laughs> You're going to be squirrel monkeys tonight. Squirrel nut zipper monkeys. Yeah, squirrel nut zipper monkeys. Hey, so how about you? Why don't you tell us? You can go to our website at www.hottutlupforever.com and leave a comment about how it is that vulnerability impacts your life. Maybe share with us a story of a chance you took being vulnerable and it totally panned out or went the opposite way, but maybe something really great you learned from it anyway. Yeah. Or you could just join the conversation with us on all the socials. We're happy to discuss more about this. Yep. We're on Facebook at How to Love Forever, Instagram at How the Numeral 2 Love Forever. Uh, you can always email us at contact at howtoloveforever.com and we can keep your identity secure if you so choose. <laughs> yeah. We're always looking to hear your feedback. So please leave a comment, especially on your podcast app of choice, because that really helps the algorithms and it helps us reach other people. Yes, please. And if you feel like the show that we're putting together provides some value, is good for the world, or just plain entertains you, we would love for you to join our community on Patreon. We do have a whole range of relationship levels you can choose from, and the more committed you are, the more we're able to share with you. You see how that works? It's vulnerability. <laughs> Speaking of awesome, join us next week as we finally get to share part one of a two-part interview with the amazing sexologist and professor, Dr. Amanda Morgan. Woo, Dr. Amanda Morgan! But that was such a good interview. Oh, and it went interview. on for so long, and it was so full of really good meat, or, you know, tofurkey if you're a vegan, um, that <laughs> we just, like, absolutely had to break it down into two different episodes mm -hmm. so that we could get all the good stuff that we could out of it. Because we just couldn't cut it up into little chunks. We just couldn't. I know, we just really couldn't. And it was such a beautiful, beautiful conversation. And it basically is a two-part interview uh, with the first part being the final episode of this season and the second part being the first episode of next season. Yeah, it's, it's like a, a cliffhanger. It's dun, a dun, cliffhanger. Dun. Buster Crab <laughs> hanging off the mountainside in black and white. Oh, man. Yeah, it's uh, it's super wonderful. I think we're... Now, I know you're all going to love it just as much as we did. So until then, remember, love bunny puppy squirrel and zipper monkeys love deep love hard <laughs> love, love forever. forever man we call our listeners the weirdest things you know eventually somebody's gonna get offended and just not listen to our show anymore i mean what the fuck is a squirrel nut zipper monkey anyway <laughs> squirrel nut zipper monkey. What, isn't that the name of a band are we gonna get squirrel in trouble zipper. for saying squirrel know. nut i think it's like squirrel nut monkeys but no it's squirrel nut zippers zipper. they, oh. they do scars right like uh <laughs> but we're squirrel nut zipper monkeys are we squirrel nut zipper monkeys i don't know right now i kind of feel like it i'm smelly <laughs>